Welcome back. You're listening to episode two of The Killer Thorn of Gypsy Rose, Analysis of Murder by Dr. Phil. We're really trying to unravel this complex and brutal murder in a chronological order. And here's what we know so far. Sheriff deputies in Springfield, Missouri, discovered Dee Dee's bloody body after friends reported a vile post on her Facebook account that Dee Dee and her disabled daughter, Gypsy Rose, share. Now, Dee Dee Blanchard was stabbed 17 times. We know that from the autopsy report. The CSI team never found the murder weapon in Dee Dee's house, and that was bothersome to detectives. What was even more bothering was that Gypsy Rose, who was said to be paralyzed and battling cancer, was nowhere to be found. They fear that the killer abducted Gypsy Rose, and so now there's a nationwide manhunt to find her. Beyond the obvious concerns, they fear that without her meds and proper care and monitoring, she could die even if it's not the abductor's intention to kill her that she would just die from lack of care, lack of taking the meds that she needs. Now, the Facebook post that we talked about earlier is a key clue here because detectives theorized that the killer may have forced Gypsy to give up the password and now they're tracing the IP address of the computer where the posting originated. And you may even remember some things about this case from the media. You've read headlines and maybe even seen some coverage of it. But what I'm going to do, particularly from this point forward, is to really take a deep dive behind the headlines, beyond what the reporters that had three or four minutes out of a half-hour newscast to talk about, and get into the nitty-gritty of what was really going on here. And that kind of starts with looking at the psychological dynamic between predators and their prey. My Bessie Stormburst low-top and weekend sneakers empower my summer adventures. Now, I went to New York last week because I had to do a press tour, and I was prepared to embrace the summer season to its fullest, no matter what it threw my way weather-wise. And I'd been going from interview to interview, like seriously, 15, 20 during the day. And then I went to a dinner with clients. I knew that in the middle of that dinner, I had to do one more really key interview. And in order to do it, I had to leave the middle of that dinner and that noisy restaurant for about 10 or 15 minutes. And sure enough, I got to the door to step outside where it was quiet and it was raining cats and dogs. But I had on my Vessi Stormburst, so I was able to go through all of that water on the sidewalk, across the street, to get into my car so I could do the interview in the quiet. You want to stay prepared. Join us now and let us make this summer one for the books. Seize the sun-kissed days and thrilling escapades at Vessi.com mystery for shoes that masterfully combine waterproof protection with urban elegance. Start your journey with Vessi and get an automatic 15% off your first order at checkout. The first page of a book never tells the full story. 
And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth, but when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street, essential television. You know, it's pretty obvious on a surface level, predators prey on the weak, right? I mean, they just do. People who aren't physically nor mentally strong enough to resist, put up a fight, or mount some kind of serious challenge to them. But here's the thing. Only a small percentage of predators are truly strangers. Most predators are known to their victims. And frankly, those people can be the most dangerous. It's Uncle Bob or neighbor Bill that's most likely to molest your child than the guy down at the school in a trench coat offering candy to kids. It's the people you know because they have access. So a close friend, family member, someone you love or who you may think loves you. Now, here's an important truth about Gypsy Rose And really about you and yours, for that matter. This may not seem logical, but if you think about it, it really is. We tend to like those people that like us. And furthermore, we tend to believe people that we like. So we like those who like us, and we believe people that we like. Now, it therefore follows that we tend to believe people that like us. Now, when you think about that for a moment, one of the primary criteria determining whether or not we believe what someone is telling us, whether we believe that someone has our best interest at heart when they're attempting to influence what we do, is significantly impacted not by the credibility or the tested validity of what they say, but simply whether or not we like who they are. And again, one of the main reasons that we may like who they are is if we perceive them as liking us. Now, why am I taking time to talk about this? I'm telling you this so you understand how vulnerable Gypsy Rose was when someone she met liked her. Because her mother didn't let anybody like her. She kept her isolated from any really intimate relationships. She'd put her on display like a show dog for charity and all that stuff, but she never let her have any real relationships. So she was very vulnerable when she met someone that really liked her, especially a male for whose attention she was really starving. Now, If you watch Dr. Phil, you've probably heard me say time and again to fathers of daughters that if you do not make your daughter feel valued, if she doesn't believe that there's at least one man in this world who believes that she is special, she will find it somewhere else. She will listen to the first old boy, the first young man that comes along and whispers in her ear, and tells her what she wants to hear. 
I've said that till I am blue in the face. Dads, you are not the only voice in your daughter's ear, so you need to make sure you are the best voice in her ear. Didi made every effort to minimize Gypsy's father, Rod's voice in Gypsy Rose's life. She kept Gypsy Rose's father out of her ear. And that may very well have cost Didi her life. And that's why I'm talking about that here. Because Gypsy Rose did meet somebody on the internet, and that somebody was a predator. Just luck of the draw. She met a predator, and boy, oh boy, was he telling her what she wanted to hear. He was in her ear, and he was making her feel like a woman. He was telling her things that made her feel grown up, made her feel desired. He preyed upon her needs. He sensed them. He went in and told her what she responded to, and her hormones were raging and he was giving her a place to vent them. Now, Gypsy Rose, from a psychological standpoint, she was easy prey for so many reasons. She was incredibly unsophisticated. She had never been in a relationship before. She was naive. She was easily manipulated. And as I said, she was desperate for male attention because of an absent father. And listen, I'm not throwing Rod under the bus here. It is not because Rod wanted to be absent or didn't care, because he did care. He paid his child support. He even paid extra. He tried to see her, but Dee Dee was keeping her isolated. She put up obstacles. She put up barriers that kept him from being able to be in her life. And look, it's well known that isolation is the number one weapon of the abuser, and you're about to learn just how much of an unconscionable abuser this mother was. And I use mother advisedly because I don't really think she was much of a mother. Now, Gypsy did get attention, like I said, but it was all calculated and controlled. Gypsy was well known in Springfield, Missouri. She was known as the brave young woman who was paralyzed battling multiple diseases, mentally challenged, and all the time keeping a smile on her face. That's how she was perceived. As it turns out, she was a puppet. She was a prop. Her mother was telling her how to act, when to speak, if at all, and when to laugh, when to cry. I mean, she was a prop. She would put her out there in front of these people when the cameras were on or when they were at some charity collecting tens of thousands of dollars. This was not the kind of attention that she craved. Now, even though she wasn't even five feet tall and she looked and acted very young, her body was maturing inside. She was experiencing powerful urges, romantic and sexual urges that she dare not reveal to her mother. She wanted to meet a man. She wanted to know a man. Now, how do I know this? Because I've talked to her. And in the next episode, you're going to hear those conversations. But I'm telling you now what I learned in an in-depth interview with her. And as I said, she wanted to know a man. And a man she did meet. A man she got to know all too well. First over the internet. And then in the real world. And you talk about luck of the draw. 
the guy she met was sick. He was twisted. He was perverted. And he was going to change her life and that of her mother forever. Monster's not a big enough word for this guy. Predator's not a big enough word for this guy. And that opinion is supported by the fact that it was him who traveled hundreds of miles to kill Gypsy Rose's mother, Dee Dee Blanchard. He killed her in a bloody knife attack. And at this point, authorities are thinking he may have killed Gypsy. Now, we know he didn't. But at that point, they're thinking maybe he did. Why did he do this? It certainly wasn't for the money, because she didn't have any. The sheriff isn't saying how she died, but has said her death was violent. The deputies originally believed that this guy killed the mother and kidnapped Gypsy and carried her away from the crime scene. They just didn't know why. Why he would kidnap a sick and wheelchair-bound young girl. It would be so difficult to move around with her. And he didn't take the wheelchairs. He didn't take the medication. It was just a puzzle. Authorities launched a manhunt for Gypsy Blanchard. So they start searching for this young woman, and it goes nationwide. What police didn't know at the time is that Gypsy actually knew the killer. She knew the killer's darkest secret. She knew that he was perverted. She knew a lot about him, even though he was still basically a stranger to her, because she had met him in person only once before. Now, she had been talking to him for nearly three years, and their relationship had gotten, well, I'm not going to get graphic here, but it had gotten racy, to say the least. So... Is there more to this case than meets the eye? There certainly is a whole lot more. Gypsy knew his dark side, but my concern was that at that point, she was probably so naive as to think she could control it because she hadn't seen it out of control. So at this point, does she think she's found her soulmate? I mean, are they lovebirds? And the police are wondering... Did this person kidnap her? Did he turn on her? Did he brutalize her? Kill her? I mean, they just didn't know. The possibilities were endless, and none of them were good. But here's the saddest part of this story of all. I mean, this is the thing that caused me to want to delve into this story. The predator who did the most harm to Gypsy Rose's mother, Dee Dee Blanchard, the man who hacked her to death, the man presumed to have abducted Gypsy, was not the predator in this story that hurt Gypsy Rose the most. Now, you got to be thinking, wait a minute, he killed her mother. How could he not be the person that hurt her the most? I'm going to tell you why. The investigation soon start to reveal that the predator who hurt Gypsy the most horribly hurt her, psychologically and physically, was her very own mother. And during the massive search for Gypsy Rose, a development no one saw coming is uncovered and reveals a family secret that may never have come to light if the murder had never happened. 
as I was first getting into this story, I'm asking myself, how many villains are in this case? One for sure, because we know this guy travels 600 miles to kill this woman. But are there two? We've got a mother that I'm saying now is an abuser. Are there three? What's Gypsy Rose involvement in all this? Is she victim and perpetrator? I mean, it's just very convoluted. So I can't talk about everybody at one time. So let's put a frame around the mind of Dee Dee Blanchard and take a hard look at her psyche and what really drives her. Now, I hate to speak ill of the dead, but to put it bluntly, in my opinion, this was a cold, manipulative, mean, selfish woman the absolute antithesis of a healthy, nurturing mother that would be committed to preparing her child for the next level of life, which is the parent's job. That was not her. She had this syrupy, sweet persona, always kind of smiley, passive. That's the social mask that she wore so well within the community. But when you peel that away... Dee Dee seemed to have absolutely no moral compass. She conned the community, she scammed charities, and she did horrible, tortuous things to her own daughter. She coerced her, brainwashed her, intimidated her, controlled her, and was basically dismantling her body. So you got to ask yourself, what would make a mother treat their own child so abominably? And The way to get a grasp on this is, if you're a parent, ask yourself how far you would have to travel from where you are right now in your mind to do something like that to one of your children. That's how distorted this was. So the question becomes, is this some kind of illness? Is it a mental disorder that drove her to abuse Gypsy so badly? Well, knowing what I now know, I believe that had Dee Dee Blanchard been presented to mental health professionals using the American Psychiatric Association's DSM-5, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, she probably would have been assigned the diagnosis Munchausen syndrome by proxy. That's also known as the factitious disorder imposed upon another. Let me explain this. Generally speaking, That condition is believed to exist when a person, in this case Dee Dee, falsely, falsely presents the individual she's caring for, in this case Gypsy, as ill, injured, or impaired, or actually induces a health crisis, again, associated with deception. Now, the symptoms can be psychological or physical, and... These patterns can occur even in the absence of obvious external rewards. Like you can do it for cash, but sometimes it happens even without that. And you only get that diagnosis if it's not explained by some delusion or psychosis. Like maybe the person's delusional, so they think if they don't do X, Y, and Z with the child that something horrible is going to happen, so they do it. It's not that. They're not delusional. They're not psychotic. They just start inducing illness in the child. Maybe they're poisoning them or 
dehydrating them, or if they get a cut, they put dirt in it. They do whatever they can to make the child sick. Or they go to the doctor and just lie and say the child is sick. And doctors rely on parents a lot to be reliable historians. So she would probably be diagnosed with that mental illness. But, and this is a big but, I'm going to break ranks with convention here because while those charged with the categorization of disorders believe that Munchausen's by proxy is a mental illness, I respectfully disagree. And so do a lot of my colleagues. But I'm being honest to tell you that a lot of people would say it's a mental illness. I say no. In my opinion, this horrific pattern of behaviors that we're about to enumerate and analyze should be framed and dealt with as a form of severe, sustained child abuse, not as a mental illness. And this is an excellent case in point. In my view, what Dee Dee Blanchard did to her daughter was straight up psychopathic, sociopathic, whatever you want to call it, behavior. It was exploitive. It was premeditated. It was unconscionable. She had no remorse. She had no empathy for what she was putting her daughter through. She was greedy, and it was self-serving. She turned her daughter into a cash cow, and she knew what she was doing. And But for this murder, I have no doubt she would still be doing it today. And when you learn all the facts, when you learn the desperation of this situation, your own moral compass may well be spinning. Your sense of right and wrong may well be challenged. And to make sense of this, I kind of have to unfold this chronologically. And you may think, well, Dr. Phil, I already know kind of what happened. You may know kind of what happened, but you don't really know what happened. It took me a lot of time and a lot of digging to really figure this out. At this point where Gypsy Rose is still missing, we're just hours. I mean, we're like less than 48 hours since Dee Dee's body was found. And as you heard in episode one, Gypsy's vanished and she's vanished without her wheelchairs or her medications. Now, her stepmother, Christy, was really worried. Dee Dee's dead and they can't find Gypsy. And first thing that came to my mind was, oh my God, somebody took her and they're gonna leave her for dead, thinking that she can't walk. Sorry. Thinking that she can't walk and she needs all this medication. Thinking they're gonna bring her somewhere and just leave her and she'd never be found. Got her. Scary. So how would Gypsy survive without her wheelchair and her medicines? And their best hope, and really their only lead to finding Gypsy, is the electronic trail that was left by the killer. And that trail is the message that he is believed to have posted on their Facebook page. And you'll remember, I shared this with you earlier. It was graphic, and it said, I effing slashed that fat pig and raped her sweet, innocent daughter. Her scream was so effing loud, LOL. Now, the reason this is such a big clue is detectives believe 
they hope that means Gypsy's alive because how else would he have the password to get into the Facebook account? He would have to get it from Gypsy and for her to tell him she would have to be alive. So they're hoping that she was at least left the house alive. I mean, you know, what are the odds that a total stranger would be able to hack into the Facebook account? That's not very good odds. I mean, they're thinking, is this too good to be true? Or can they actually have caught an amazing break here? So they immediately put a trace on the computer's IP address because, I mean, you guys, I'm computer challenged to say the least, but if you get somebody that's tech savvy, they can backtrack an email and find out exactly what machine it came from and exactly where that machine is. And that's exactly what they did here. And this message originated from a house in Wisconsin, some 600 miles away from Gypsy's home. It's not something you hear about every day. Gypsy's father, Rod, says at this point, all he knows is that his ex-wife is dead and his daughter is missing. And he says a million things are racing through his mind when the sheriff told him about this. And he had a long drive from New Orleans to Springfield, Missouri, and he had plenty of time to think slowly and logically about all the circumstances surrounding this. The stabbing in the dead of the night, the kidnapping of a paralyzed young daughter, the cryptic Facebook post that they had told him about. And he's thinking, you know, things just don't add up here. So I thought it was fishy right off the bat. Something was up. You know, something didn't seem right. And as you're about to learn, Dad's instincts were dead on. Gypsy and Dee Dee Blanchard, a mother-daughter team who came to Springfield as self-described Hurricane Katrina evacuees with a story of suffering that brought an outpouring of support. Greene County Sheriff Jim Arnott says, don't think this was a random attack. He said this murder was targeted. It was intentional. This was not random. I feel that this was a, uh, a targeted situation and, and not a random act. A lot of people in Springfield knew this mother and daughter because they had been so high profile. And they couldn't fathom why anyone would want to kill Dee Dee. And this seemed like an execution-style slaying. It just didn't make sense. She was a local hero. Everybody loved her. Everybody loved Gypsy. They started over there. She had like a fresh start to get new doctors. Rod says when Gypsy arrived in her new hometown, this brought about some big challenges and changes for her because she had to go back to square one with a new team of physicians. And what we mean by team is, remember, she's reporting that her daughter has all of these diseases seizures and leukemia and muscular dystrophy, that Dee Dee was going to have to start with a new team of physicians for Gypsy. And what we know now is this might really have just been a new opportunity for Dee Dee. Because if you track these people that have Munchausen's by proxy, you find a pattern of doctor hopping because they'll go to a doctor and they'll, you know, sometimes the doctor will go along with them for a while, but then a doctor starts asking questions they can't answer. 
the doctor starts ordering lab tests that they can't influence. They start getting objective data, and so they got to move on. You know, at first, the doctor gives them the benefit of the doubt, accepts what they say. You come in and say, hey, we just came from New Orleans. My daughter has muscular dystrophy, and we've been on these medications. And the doctor looks and says, well, those are right. That's what you'd have for muscular dystrophy. And she has scars on her legs where you've done a, a biopsy of the muscles and stuff. And you say, well, yeah, I mean, everything looks to be adding up. And why would somebody lie about that? And so you take it on its face until you can get things worked up. And so now she has a doctor that's written down muscular dystrophy and renewed prescriptions. So she now takes that file to another doctor and he says, oh, my colleague says muscular dystrophy and these are the right medications. So now he assumes that this other doctor she wrote down muscular dystrophy, so now I think. So they just kind of play the telephone game, and pretty soon it's just assumed. But you doctor hop for so long, and all of a sudden people start to kind of get on to you, so you got to keep moving on. You run out of doctors. You run out of ERs. And so when she moved to Springfield, that just might have been a new opportunity with a whole new set of unsuspecting doctors. And this was no problem for Dee Dee because she had worked in a hospital as a nurse's aide and she was a self-taught expert on all of Gypsy's maladies. She went to school. She would go get books. She would talk to Dr. Google. She would get everything she needed to know to talk about this accurately. And because all of Gypsy's critical medical records were destroyed conveniently in the hurricane, it was up to Dee Dee to fill in the blanks. And everybody was like, oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry you lost everything. So let's we'll just build this together. So they're trying to help her. And she had it all down pat. She had done it countless times before, telling the doctors Gypsy had muscular dystrophy, epileptic seizures, leukemia. Just a few of the myriad conditions that Gypsy supposedly had battled all of her life. She was able to come with this long list of ailments that were pre-existing without them doing any thorough testing of, of her muscles and, and all the things she said she had, you know. A few years earlier, when Gypsy still lived in New Orleans, she had undergone this painful muscle biopsy to test for muscular dystrophy. Painful doesn't even begin to describe it. Surgeons just carve right into her quadriceps, you know, those big muscles on the front of her thighs. And Gypsy was left scarred for life. Rod says Dee Dee told him that the biopsy confirmed the diagnosis of muscular dystrophy and that Gypsy's muscles were wasting away. She would be confined to a wheelchair for the rest of what likely would be a short and agonizing life. Looking back, the ailments that probably struck me, you know, with some concern, some questioning about it was definitely when, when she had her in the wheelchair. You know, I, I did question it. And again, Rod didn't question that. He assumed, why would her mother lie about that? And sure enough, she's in a wheelchair and she took her to the doctor. She said it confirmed it. 
He didn't demand to see the papers. He was not suspicious that she would be lying. But as he investigated further, he unwittingly learned something about Gypsy's paralysis that just didn't add up. We've all seen the headlines in the news of how someone lost their life in an act of cold-blooded murder. And while it's sad and grabs your attention, most people go on with their day without giving it another thought. But have you ever stopped to think about the life of the person at the center of the news story? They were more than just a headline or a statistic. They were someone's loved one or friend. I'm Mike Morford, and my podcast, The Murder of My Family, dives into some of those stories to help listeners get to know the person who was lost and how their death affected those closest to them. Listen to The Murder of My Family everywhere you listen to podcasts. There are well over 100 episodes to binge on now. I had to talk to one of her sisters, and her sister says, Rod, you know, she's not a gypsy. She can walk. The last time anyone saw her walking was years ago, back when she was a toddler. Dee Dee had gypsy placed in a wheelchair after a minor motorcycle accident when she was seven years old. She said gypsy's legs were giving out, and she was becoming paralyzed. And the wheelchair had been her constant companion ever since. So I, I questioned Didi about it, and I'm like, what's going on? She can walk or not? You know, she's going to be in a wheelchair all her life. And, you know, the answer I got from Didi was, you know, she had a disease she was diagnosed with, and it was going to progressively get worse, and eventually she was going to be bound to the wheelchair at all times. Didi is telling him Gypsy is paralyzed, and her stepsister says, no, she's not. At this point, he's really confused. And Rod and Christy are about to find out about another lie. Rod Blanchard says the conflicting information about Gypsy's paralysis and her ability to walk is now making him question everything Dee Dee has been telling him all of these years. All of a sudden, we always say hindsight's 2020. He's looking back now and saying, oh my God. I never saw that paperwork. I never confirmed this. Now, everything he took at face value, he's now questioning. And he starts to wonder, is she really paralyzed? Does she really have cancer? Will she live long enough to see another birthday? All of Gypsy's life, Rod and Christy believed everything Dee Dee told them. After all, she had some medical training and had worked in a hospital and cared for Gypsy 24-7, and he had not. He didn't have any training. He didn't have any expertise, so he deferred to her. We always stayed in communication, you know, phone calls and everything. That with the physical visits, the further Didi moved away, you know, the, the less we got to spend time with her. And seeing his daughter on a regular basis proved difficult, if not impossible, after Gypsy moved to Missouri. Now, this was not because of the distance. Christy says Dee Dee pretty much cut them off. Every time we tried to go, it was fine up until two days before. And they weren't answering our calls, our texts, or anything. And the last visit was two years prior to the murder. And I was like, that's it. Tired of trying. It was always, always something. Now, remember what I said, isolation is the number one tool of the abuser. And they didn't know whether she was just being an overprotective mother or if it was just so time consuming to take care of her and manage her. They didn't really know. All they knew is there was just always some reason that they couldn't see Gypsy, couldn't talk to Gypsy. 
now looking back, they realize she couldn't afford to let Gypsy talk to them because she might let the cat out of the bag. I'd speak to Gypsy a couple of times every every few months, special occasions, uh, calling to see how she was doing, if she had a surgery or she was feeling ill or a doctor's appointment, you know, calling to, you know, see how things went. I never thought that anything was wrong. You know, I thought that they were being truthful with what they were telling us. Fast forward to when detectives cleared the murder scene. Robin Christie cleaned up Dee Dee's house and they gathered Gypsy's vast collection of stuffed animals because they hoped they would have them when they greet her upon her safe return. They hope this will make her feel comfortable. She'll have all of her stuffed animals. When we were at Dee Dee and Gypsy's house cleaning up, my sister-in-law was taking part of the kitchen area. And she says, Christy, come see. Come here, I need you to look at something. And she pulls out this vial, glass, plastic vial, with a Q-tip swab. And it said Gypsy's DNA. Gypsy's DNA in the fridge. What in the world could she be doing with that? After it defrosted, uh, when we brought it to the coroner's office, we had asked them, you know, to test it, but they never got back to us on that. Then, Christy says she discovered something even more telling, something she claims the detectives never found during their exhaustive search of the house. They missed a lot. (laughs) They missed a lot. I mean, a lot to the prescription pad I found underneath the bed that uh, Dee Dee stole from uh, Mercy Hospital. The binder of everything she's told the doctors, and, you know, there was a lot. A detailed binder listing Gypsy's conditions is something you'd expect from a caregiver, right? I mean, you expect them to have records. But a blank prescription pad? Why would Dee Dee even have that? She's not entitled to have that. That's not even legal. She should not have a blank prescription pad. She's a nurse's aide, not an MD. Doctors are the ones who write the prescriptions, not the mother of a patient. There's no reason she should have that. Dee Dee has a closet filled to the brim with dozens of medications. Powerful drugs like Tegretol, which is an anticonvulsant used to treat seizures, It's powerful medication. It can be very effective. But if you don't need it and you take it, it can be a problem. If you're using it off-label, you're taking it the way it's not supposed to be taken, then, of course, it can create side effects. And they believe that may have contributed to rotting Gypsy's teeth from the inside out, leaving her with huge gaps in her smile. Christy says after she found the blank prescription pad, she was just shell-shocked. Wondering what mischief Dee Dee was up to. She wondered, what is she doing with this? And is she using this to con somebody? Is she getting pills that she shouldn't have? What is she doing? And you would think that would be kind of the end. But she says what she discovered next topped everything. They're cleaning their house. Some of the neighbors came by, and they kept telling Rod, I'm so sorry. 
I'm so sorry. And I was like, why are you telling me I'm sorry? You know, he's sorry. So my sister-in-law was like, why are you telling my brother he's sorry? You know, you're sorry. And they said, well, they had a son that was younger than Gypsy and, and died. Now they've learned that supposedly Gypsy had a little brother. A son, Dee Dee, never told Rod about a son born long after Rod split up from Dee Dee. Well, you can be pretty sure she would have let him know all about it. He would have been on the hook for child support for both Gypsy and the boy. Rod and Christy both say they knew that was a bold-faced lie. And Christy's sixth sense kicked in. So she showed the neighbors a recent photo of her son, Dylan, and just asked them, is this the boy that Dee Dee has talked about? And we showed a picture of Dylan, of how he looked now. And I'm like, yeah, that's, that looks like him, but he's older. And they're like, no, that, that's our son. He's alive and well. So that prompted Christy to ask the neighbors some very probing questions about Dee Dee and the mystery son. And she says what Dee Dee supposedly told them was just all lies. It was very disturbing. Dee Dee told them that her and Rod were still married. Told some that they weren't married anymore. That the reason why she left Louisiana was that she was in fear of her abusive husband. Now, wait a minute. Supposedly, the reason Dee Dee and Gypsy left New Orleans was because Hurricane Katrina destroyed their home. And remember, Rod divorced Dee Dee nearly two decades earlier while she was still pregnant with Gypsy. I was so mad. You know, like, how could she use my son as part of her plan? You know, her lies, her web of lies. So now there's this web of lies. I mean, is there a plan that goes with it? Is there some kind of plot that Dee Dee's trying to hatch? Well, as the old saying goes, when it rains, it pours. And with Dee Dee not around to cover things up, Rod and Christy Blanchard were being just deluged with an avalanche of information. They say they are learning things that they may have never known about if Dee Dee was still alive. Okay, so what is it? So, so far they found Gypsy's DNA in the refrigerator. They find a blank prescription pad underneath her bed. And now they claim their own son is being passed off as Dee Dee's dead little boy. You just got to wonder, what is she up to? After Rod talked to Dee Dee's neighbors, he seeks out Gypsy's friends. And there are many, but there are some people she kind of knows. And he asked them all sorts of questions. How did Dee Dee act around Gypsy? What did they know about Gypsy's paralysis? Did she ever tell them she could walk? That was some pretty enlightening conversations. I said, you know, you were friends with, with Gypsy? They'd say, yeah, we were friends. I said, you was here a good bit? Yeah, we came over, hung out, played. I said, she never once told you anything that she can walk or anything? And they said, never, never, ever. Even though Gypsy was by now a young adult, her mother infantilized her. She treated her as if she was still a child. She never let Gypsy visit her friends alone. She constantly held her hand. She closely monitored her computer usage. She even insisted they share a Facebook profile, and they named it DGIP, 
But what Dee Dee never knew is that Gypsy figured out a way around that virtual wall. At night, when Dee Dee was asleep, Gypsy would get up and secretly fire up that laptop. And without telling her mother, Gypsy created her own Facebook account so she could communicate with her best friend, Aaliyah Woodmancy, who lived next door, and eventually to the outside world. And she shared with Aaliyah her deepest secrets and her suppressed desires. And what were they? Well, Gypsy wanted a boyfriend. But how would she break the ironclad grip her mother had on her? Gypsy went online and secretly joined a Christian dating website. In short order, she met a young man she thought was the soulmate she so desperately wanted. His name, Nicholas Godijan. But this soulmate, Nicholas, he had some baggage. So much baggage that you can't even imagine. He told Gypsy that he had multiple personalities, also known as dissociative identity disorder. In addition, Nicholas is also said to suffer from Asperger's syndrome, considered to be on the autism spectrum. People diagnosed with Asperger's often have great difficulty communicating with others in social settings. He told Gypsy he spent his days alone in his parents' basement playing video games. He's said to have a low IQ and supposedly has the mind of an 11-year-old, even though he's 22. But like I said, absent a strong father's presence, a male teaching her to value herself, she was vulnerable and love was blind. Gypsy only had eyes for Nicholas. To her, he was the one. She thought they had a shared destiny. As it turned out, she was right. But if that shared destiny was ever going to come to fruition, she had to figure a way to get with him. And he was already a convict. You see, Nicholas had a criminal record. He was convicted of disorderly conduct at a fast food restaurant. So what is disorderly conduct? Well, it can be a lot of things. In this case, he was caught fondling himself while eating french fries and watching porn on his laptop. Soulmate. Doesn't sound like such a great catch. Not the kind of guy you'd want to meet mama, but that's exactly what Gypsy wanted to do. When she started having these teenage hormones, you know, I mean, she saw her friend Aaliyah, you know, living a life, having fun and and stuff, and those things she couldn't do. She just couldn't. What child doesn't want to have a boyfriend, you know, live a life? And Dee Dee was pulling her back. You know, never had a boyfriend, never went to school, never had a prom, you know, never had a first date. Besides Nick, which was a basically online boyfriend, but, you know, never had a boyfriend that you did things with as a normal boyfriend and girlfriend would do. Gypsy's secret online fantasy relationship with Nicholas lasted nearly three years. That's a long time to connect with someone only on the computer. And their talks progressed from innocent chatter to being kind of flirtatious and naughty, and then all the way to kinky. Gypsy dived into the dark world of all things BDSM. 
bondage, discipline, and sadomasochism. You have to understand, she had nothing to compare this to. She had no other relationship. There was no normal for her to use as a reference point. All she knew was that she loved this person, she wanted to please this person, she wanted to participate with this person, and if this is what he wanted, how did she know this wasn't what everybody did? And she enthusiastically went along with it. Gypsy was aching to meet Nicholas in person. She had so much more she wanted to tell him, so much more she wanted to do with him. She wanted to feel what it's like to be a real woman. Not a sickly, paralyzed young girl in a wheelchair with a shaved head and a feeding tube sticking out of her stomach. So she's thinking, how would these two ever get together in real life? Dee Dee had so much control over Gypsy, there was no way she could ever sneak out of the house in her wheelchair, that's for sure. But Gypsy came up with a simple plan. She thought if her mom actually met Nicholas in person and approved of him then she could openly date him. But how would she ever create that meeting? How would she ever pull that off? She certainly couldn't tell her that she had been talking to him for three years after her mother went to bed. You heard me say earlier, Gypsy is fascinated with all things Disney. So when the remake of Cinderella came out, she persuaded her mother to take her. And once at the movie theater, she would accidentally on purpose bump into Nicholas. The night at the movies, Gypsy was dressed like Cinderella at the ball. Silver tiara on a blonde wig covering up her shaved head. She was all decked out in a baby blue gown, and she even wore glass slippers. Gypsy, despite being 24 years old, was dressed to the nines in a Cinderella costume, looking every bit the princess. But she was still under the control of her mother. And she rolled her wheelchair up next to her mother's seat right on the aisle. And sure enough, they bumped into Nicholas. What a coincidence. And he sat right next to them. They exchanged pleasantries like two people meeting for the first time. And actually, they were meeting for the first time in person. You can just imagine how excited Gypsy was. Just think of all the intimate sexting and all that had been going on between them for all this time. And now here they were, pressing the flesh, shaking hands, introducing themselves. Dee Dee smelled a rat. From the beginning, she wasn't the least impressed with her daughter's Prince Charming, even though Nicholas was all dressed up for the occasion. He had a black suit and a black tie. He had gotten them from Gypsy, actually. Dee Dee thought Gypsy was paying way too much attention to this stranger. She was threatened. Well, at one point, Nicholas went for popcorn. Gypsy said she needed to visit the ladies' room to freshen up a bit. And sure enough, she met Nicholas in the lobby. He rolled her wheelchair right into the men's room. Gypsy lost her virginity right there in the handicap stall. Their bond was forever forged right there in that cinema bathroom. And as the closing credits rolled, Gypsy said goodbye to Nicholas, and he went back home. Dee Dee was not happy with Gypsy. She was upset with her for having spent so much time and attention on this guy. She had no idea why Gypsy couldn't wipe the smile off her face. Fast forward three months since Gypsy met Nicholas at the movie. She continued to talk to him, continued to hope and pray that he would come and rescue her. We now know that Nicholas Godijan made a second visit to see Gypsy, and it was on that visit 
that he murdered Dee Dee Blanchard and Gypsy Rose vanished. The question is, did she do so willingly? Or when he went dark, did he go dark on her as well? Detectives are stumped, but for that electronic trail leading to a house in Wisconsin. So a team of detectives are heading up there as another team back in Springfield gets some key information from a cab driver by the name of Janice Buttram. She tells them that a few days earlier, she drove a young man and someone she thought was Gypsy Rose to the bus station. Here's Janice talking to the local news about the fare she will never forget. Something was wrong. What did they tell you about their relationship? That they were brother and sister. That was the first lie I knew that they were lying. They didn't act like brother and sister at all. They were very much together. Janice says she was absolutely certain it was Gypsy because she recognized her from all the stories on local news. She definitely told me that her name was Gypsy Rose. Now, she says when she dropped them off at the bus station, she got the shock of her life. The young woman she recognized from the news stories, the young woman in the wheelchair was walking. So she thought, am I wrong? Was it really Gypsy Rose? She went and talked to a bunch of her fellow cabbies, told them what she saw, and they were as flabbergasted as she was because, as I said, people in town knew this mother and daughter. She not only walked, she ran. And Janice says what made her extra suspicious about the claim that they were brother and sister was that they said they had tickets for different buses. That was my biggest indication that they were lying. Because if you were traveling together as brother and sister, why aren't you on the same bus? She had the answers. She had the cash. She had the plan. The plan? What was the plan? Detectives in Springfield believe Gypsy is on a Greyhound bus, but headed to where? Well, they checked with the station master, and they learned Gypsy and the man went to Wisconsin. Surprise, surprise. That's exactly where the Facebook post originated from. The sheriff in Missouri asked his counterpart in Big Ben, Wisconsin, to send a team of detectives to the house where the Facebook message originated. It's the house where Nicholas Godijan is living. Gypsy's boyfriend. The local sheriff's deputies raid the place. There's a brief standoff. But here's the good news. Gypsy is alive. She's safe and sound. We have located uh, Gypsy in another state. Uh, She is okay. Uh, We do have another person of interest in custody. That person of interest the sheriff is talking about is Nicholas, and he is in handcuffs. But the sheriff said another person of interest is in custody, and that is Gypsy Rose. And she is shot on camera by the local television station in handcuffs, walking from the house to the car. Rod and Christy couldn't believe what they're seeing on local news. They've heard about it, but they haven't actually seen it with their own eyes. Gypsy Rose is walking. Gypsy's walking in the courtroom. 
They got her in handcuffs. I'm like, she's walking, wow. They weren't the only ones stunned by that image. Friend Aaliyah Woodmansey, she says she had no clue that Gypsy could really walk, never had a clue. See her walk. It was really upsetting. We also know that she can walk without assistance or a wheelchair, and she can do that very well. Oh, and deputies say they found the bloody knife inside Nicholas' house. I said that Gypsy was naive and not at all worldly. They didn't know what to do with the knife, and they didn't know whether the bus had metal detectors or not, and they didn't want to leave it there, so they mailed it to his house. She's under arrest in connection with her mother's murder. The sheriff says, no doubt about it, Gypsy was in on the plot to kill her mother. Well, Greene County, Missouri Sheriff's detectives take the next plane to Wisconsin, and they question Gypsy. Listen closely. This is the actual audio of the interrogation. Your mom's dead, okay? Now, what I want to ask you is... Your your mom's mom's passed away, okay? And she's deceased, all right? Now, what I want to ask you, did you have involvement in this? Did she have a heart attack? She was sick. Hey, hey, look at me. We're not going to play those games. What happened with your mom that night? Um... I've said that Gypsy was naive and certainly manipulated by Nicholas Godijan, but having been trained in forensic psychology, I know that one of the litmus tests in holding someone accountable or not is whether they know the difference between right and wrong at the time they do whatever it is they're accused of doing. The very fact that Gypsy Rose is lying persistently and in a somewhat layered way makes it very clear to me that she knew what she did. She knew her role in all of this was wrong. If not, why lie about it? If you don't know it's wrong, you would just say, yes, I did this, I did that, and I did this. You lie about it, you cover it up because you know it's wrong. So she answers that question when she lies to detectives. Did you kill your mom? No, no, sir. Did you help? No, sir. No, let's kill your mom. No, sir. Gypsy appears almost as if she's hearing about her mother's brutal death for the first time. Again, feigning surprise. But if that's what she's trying to do, it didn't work. She didn't fool the detectives, and she certainly did not fool her father. Kind of figured that she she did have something to do with it. I didn't I didn't think anybody would go in there and decide to kill her her mom and, and take her, you know, I, f- I figured she would protect her mom that from, from, from a situation like that. So 
you know, whether it be lock a door or, or whatever, uh, to try to keep somebody out. So I kind of figured she, she might have something to do with it. You know, she knew something about it. Down the hall, another detective pulls Nicholas into a separate interrogation room and grills him. Did Gypsy know that you were going to kill her mother? Um, honestly, she asked me to. Why did she ask you to do that? Because she thought it was her only way to be with me. Okay, I'll admit it. I did actually stab her mother. I will admit it. Why did you guys decide that you would stab her instead of shooting her with a gun or poisoning her or doing beating her with a bat? Like, why did you guys decide stabbing would be what you did to kill her? Um, honestly, uh, the thing is, is we really wouldn't have known how to poison her. And so she was looking for the easiest way to do it? Yes, okay. this way she would be in less pain. She wanted her mom's death to be quick. They ask Nicholas about the Facebook post and ask him an awkward but important question. Did you have sex with Dee? No. Are you sure? Yep. Positive? I'm 100% positive. Okay. What do you think about people that have sex with dead bodies? It's quite disturbing, honestly. Okay. That's just, that would bother you? Yeah. Okay. I don't like necrophilia. Why did nobody know she could walk? Uh, her mom, uh, wanted everyone thinking that she was like 16 the entire time, so, yeah, she felt kind of trapped <laughs> on a, a wheelchair when she, when I actually was trying to encourage her to be able to walk more and more and more. Okay, so, she can actually walk. Yep. And stand and do everything. Yep. But her mom wanted her to, to use the wheelchair and pretend yep. like she was 16. Yeah, 16 and disabled, yes. 16 and disabled. Godijan said it all. He claims Dee Dee wanted Gypsy to pretend she was much younger than she actually was. Only 16 when she was nearly 24 at the time of the murder. That's eight years difference. That's a third of her life. So why would Dee Dee do that? So Gypsy's indeed walking. There's either been a big miracle here, or this is a big scam. Was Dee Dee making Gypsy look sick and paralyzed when she really wasn't? Like I was mad because, you know, they've kind of pulled the wool over my eyes all these years. She had to have been making her, you know, fake her illness all, all her life, and she just had enough. It really makes you wonder what kind of sick and twisted logic was going on in Dee Dee's mind, and it's certainly too late for us to ask her that question. If Dee Dee was abusing Gypsy by making her appear ill when she really wasn't, then why didn't Gypsy just go to the police for help, or to her father, or stepmother Christie? I felt guilt. I felt stupid. How can I let this happen? You know, why I wasn't there for, for Gypsy Moore? I think that if I could have built that relationship with her. She wouldn't have hesitated to call me and say, Daddy, you know, this ain't right. Mom's making me stay in the wheelchair and I can walk. Talking to Gypsy now about it, you know, she said when her mom would come back, she, you know, she'd have to definitely jump back in the wheelchair. You know, I can understand her not telling me. Dee Dee always kind of kept me, you know, keep the enemies close or whatever, this and that. You know, she probably knows that I would have, have acted on it. After a short time in the county jail in Wisconsin, Gypsy and Nicholas are extradited to Missouri. 
Nicholas pleaded not guilty to first-degree murder, but in a stunning development that nobody saw coming, Gypsy works out a plea deal with prosecutors. How do you plead to the Class A felony of murder in the second degree? Guilty. Guilty to second-degree murder. Gypsy did not wield a knife, but she claims she was the mastermind of the murder. The mastermind. She's been described as a middle age of six or seven, second grade education, protected and sheltered by her mother, never allowed to interact with anybody without her mother in the room. She masterminded the murder of her mother. Rod and Christy are in shock. I thought that Gypsy was like relieved that her mom was dead. And they say they were snookered by Dee Dee just like everyone else. So you know how much control Dee Dee had over Gypsy. Just, you know, I wanted to know how much, how serious it was and how big of a secret that, that, that Gypsy kept under Dee Dee's control. Rod says when he spoke to Gypsy in jail, she told him that from day one, she knew her legs worked just fine and she could walk with no problem. But she felt helpless to challenge her strong-willed mother. She says Gypsy said when she went to the doctor, Dee Dee told her to keep her mouth shut. You know, she tell her sit there and don't, you know, don't say nothing. Just I'm gonna do all the talking. It's scary to think what, you know, what 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 she told Gypsy uh, if she, you know, the consequences she'd have if if she did say anything. You know, I always controlled her with that fear. It didn't take long for me to realize that you know. If she can walk, what else is, has been a lie all these years? You know, I just posed the question, what was going on in Dee Dee's mind? What was going on in Gypsy's mind? Dee Dee was overbearing. Dee Dee ran the show. She choreographed everything. She looked up the diseases. She looked up the symptoms. She knew what to report. And she told Gypsy Rose exactly what to say. And right in front of Gypsy, she would say to the doctor, she's intellectually challenged, and so she doesn't communicate very well. Say hello to the doctor, Gypsy. And in her squeaky, infantile voice, she would smile and say hello. But not much else would come out of her. But she was not dumb. She was not intellectually challenged. She knew how to create a Facebook account. She knew how to carry on a three-year relationship. She knew how to get the money to get clothes to get them to go to Jean. She knew how to set up the meet. She knew how to get him there. And the question sits there, why didn't she just run away? Why didn't she just call the police? Why didn't she just tell her father? We're going to address those questions, I promise. So what are the lies and what is the truth? They are both intertwined because Gypsy is a victim of what's commonly called Munchausen syndrome by proxy. And that is an extreme, sadistic, and very cruel form of abuse. Most say it's a mental illness. It's listed in the DSM-5. As I've said, I disagree. I think it's a form of horrible child abuse. But the person sure gets a lot of feedback. They sure get a lot of kudos for being devoted and faithful. They make their child sick, and then they're the hero for taking care of them. When a mother like Dee Dee has Munchausen syndrome by proxy, psychologists call the process mother imposturing, a clinical condition which lying is the essential mode of interaction. 
Dee Dee certainly fit that, because she seems to have lied about everything. The syndrome is very difficult disorder to diagnose because the person suffering from it must first admit to the abuse they're inflicting on others. And getting people to have enough insight and courage to say, first, I want to confess that I'm abusing my child or I'm abusing my elder here, my mother or whoever. That's just not an easy thing to do. People are loath to admit that they are abusers. So this is very hard to diagnose and therefore very underreported. This seems to be a rare condition, whether it is a mental illness or a form of abuse. Either way you categorize it, it is very underreported. Unfortunately, as in Didi's case, it sometimes goes undetected until it's revealed by a catastrophic event. And as far as Didi is concerned, hers is a textbook case. It's probably one of the worst I've seen in all the years that I've been in the mental health profession. It's named after a character in 18th century German literature, Baron von Munchausen. He was a con artist. He told wild and exaggerated stories. And by all accounts, Didi Blanchard was a con artist too. The charity scam Didi was running off Gypsy's fake illnesses. The tens of thousands of dollars she received in government money. She apparently became a scamstress when she was a young adult. Her family reportedly says that she passed worthless checks, opened credit card accounts in other people's names. They even accused her of slowly poisoning her father by putting weed killer in his food. Now, they never got enough evidence to charge her, but the family certainly suspects it. And there's no dispute that Dee Dee pretty much lied about everything involving Gypsy. She even forged her birth certificate. Remember when Gypsy went missing and the news reported she was 19? She was actually 24, almost 24. However you categorize it, the bottom line here, Dee Dee was a child abuser of the worst kind. The weapons she used on Gypsy were powerful prescription drugs, countless surgeries, and an iron will. Didi had the papers written up saying she was incapable, so she, she ran, she would get caught. Uh, Didi would just say, you know, yeah, she's, you know, she's retarded or whatever, you know, she needs to come back home with me. I don't think she should have died for it, but, you know, like I said, there's not a lo lot of love lost now. I mean, she, she took the better part of her daughter's life, and she's changed our lives so much. Gypsy was and is a victim, no question about it. Journals talk about it as having a lasting effect. Victims suffering from fear, pain, loss of normal attachment, oftentimes suffering from PTSD after the fact, depression, anxiety. This doesn't go away in a short period of time. The Mayo Clinic says victims often suffer from a sort of Stockholm Syndrome, where victims empathize and work with their abusers trying to get their approval. And all the time Dee Dee was making Gypsy sick, she was actually making the murderer. We'll talk more about that in the next episode, because next you're going to hear my exclusive interview with Gypsy Rose. It was a very straightforward, no-holds-barred interview. She reveals everything, the fake illnesses, the boyfriend, and the murder. She's going to tell you how much she knew along the way, how much she understood about what her mother was lying about. And she's going to tell us exactly what happened that night that her mother was killed because she was there. And she's going to tell us what happened when she asked her boyfriend the question, will you kill my mother? 
him if I ask Victor, please. And I said, Victor, will you please come kill my mother for me? When you hear all the details, you may wonder, was this a form of self-defense? Nobody endorses vigilante justice. But did this come down to it's her or me? Somebody's going to die. That's coming up in Episode 3 of The Killer Thorn of Gypsy Rose. Analysis of Murder by Dr. Phil. I am Dr. Phil. Thanks for listening.